Hey everyone, this is David Kern. Uh, welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. We um, we lost a literary legend earlier this week. Cormac McCarthy died on Tuesday. Uh, today is Thursday, June fifteenth, and today we are going to be recording two uh, sort of commemorative episodes. Two episodes where we um, think about what Cormac McCarthy means and uh, discuss some of his best works, uh, discuss some of our favorite passages, uh, and generally just remember that he, you know, this literary titan. Um, this first episode is going to be a conversation that I had with Tim this morning. So Tim and I recorded um, this about an hour ago. We discussed our Mount Rushmore of Cormac McCarthy books and what we think his, uh, his contribution is to American letters. Uh, later on today, I'm going to be recording with Sean and Heidi, part two of this conversation. So uh, up first, Tim and I, coming up later, Sean and, and Heidi and I, and just wanted to, to discuss McCarthy and uh, share these episodes with you. So with that, uh, here's my conversation with Tim. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, rest in peace, Cormac McCarthy, memory eternal. Okay, so I'm here with Tim now. Tim, we, you know, we had to talk about Cormac yeah. McCarthy. Yeah. Um, and uh, when when we were texting in our group chat about his death, you were expressing, you know, you I think the phrase you said was, "I'm just genuinely sad." Yeah. Um, why is this such a sad day for you? I mean, um, I guess another way of asking that is, you know, I'm not asking why are you sad that somebody died. I'm asking, you know, right, right. What did McCarthy mean to you? Celebrities and and writers and stuff die every day, um, but but yeah. this one stands out for you. Why is that? I think probably because I have spent more time with his books maybe than any other author. And David, we like to read. This is a show for people who read. And I have probably read more of his texts than any other author that I know. Like maybe Tolstoy, maybe Hemingway, but probably McCarthy. I read and reread and reread his books so much so that I just, um, yeah, his voice, I, I'm just, I, I really hope that he might have one more book in him before he died, you know, that was probably half written and is now going to be published, you know, in some hacked up way, you know, in a couple mm -hmm. of years or something like that. But I don't know that I'm answering your question. Um, He's got that he and his son have a half written or, or I guess I don't know that it's exactly half, but a partially written uh, screenplay for Blood Meridian that's been optioned. Oh, really? John Hillcoat, who made The Road, is planning to to make it. So there is that half half developed project out there. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, when they when you you have you know like Tolkien or uh, even um, John Le Carre or someone like that, where there's yeah. there's final work out there and projects that you know, probably we'll see the light of day that had he lived, maybe they never would have because yeah. you get the demand for it. And, um, but okay. So, you know, you mentioned Tolstoy. Yeah. Tolstoy writes these long sprawling mm -hmm. books. And so the sheer amount of time you spend with them is, is, is a lot. Um, it, despite the sort of sprawling nature of blood Meridian and the fact that, you know, the border trilogy is three books and, and all that M McCarthy doesn't really write those sprawling right. 
uh, epics and they're tightly constructed. They're emotionally kind of reserved. Uh, they're borderline nihilistic, although I don't think that, you know, I don't, I think that kind of misunderstands him personally, but, um, I agree. I agree pretty strongly there. Yeah. But, um, what about his work for you made it something that you wanted to go back to over and over again that would make you want to reread? Um, now we're, as you said, we're, we're book lovers. This is close reads. We liked, we, we, we are rereaders. That's kind of like yeah, one yeah, of yeah. the things we love in life is returning to, to a book that, that moved us. But what about his work made you say, okay, I've got to read the entire corpus i'm yeah. gonna go back to these books i've got to memorize passages you know before we you're gonna bring up a passage i think soon and you said i gotta find the specific passage and so yeah. he's that kind of writer for you and what about his work is that for you draws you back i think he does the three things that every novelist attempts to do well he does them with extreme expertise so i mean just to be really clear i think we'll be reading him in a hundred years we might be reading him in 200 years i think he's that good mm. the three things that he does extraordinarily well are he his prose is so beautiful and so unique it's both really poetic and suggestive on the one hand and like kind of hyper realist on the other hand so his prose, he does exceptionally well. I think mm -hmm. he's a master of capturing dialogue. And he can get across in a half a page, sometimes by what is not being said, what it takes, you know, lesser novelist, a full chapter to get across. He and he and he captures tone, his ability to capture what a cowboy from the 1950s sounds like when he is on the prairie with his best friend mm. and they're having a conversation about the deepest things in life. He can both touch on the deepest things in life through his dialogue without ever it becoming the voice of somebody else that isn't this cowboy from 1950. Mm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the third thing for me is that he has a point of view. It's a real enigmatic point of view sometimes, but all the great novelists, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, yeah, Austin, all of them, Austin. Yeah, Austin's a perfect example. She has a very clear point of view and she doesn't just slap it down on the table, um, you know, in her first chapter, but she uses a full 250 pages to convey her sense of the world and it's sophisticated and it's moving and it makes you see the world in a different light. And I think that McCarthy did that, did the other two things, dialogue and prose, just with mm. utmost expertise. I'm starting to like, I'm, I'm talking about him and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really sad about this. You read enough of somebody and you genuinely think like, this person is my friend. You you understand the mm -hmm. kind of silly celebrity thing when people, you know, run up to a movie star and they've seen Kira Knightley, you know, 15 times on the screen. And so they think that they have a personal relationship with her. And so they camp out for her, you know, on the set that she's working on and they scream and want her autograph. And we kind of laugh. And then I think about 
how much I have listened to Cormac McCarthy. And I'm like, I have that relationship with Cormac McCarthy. And I, and I try to, I mean, I thought about camping out just to kind of shake his hand. So it's, it's not so absurd for me to like, think about having this kind of personal relationship with someone I've never met. Hmm. So you mentioned point of view, prose, dialogue. Is that the three terms that you that you were using? Yeah. Um, do you, wh- where do you think is he is at his peak in those, in those categories? Like, so, you know, some people who listen to this podcast may have never read McCarthy. Yeah. Some people may have read say all, just all the pretty horses with us when we did that on the podcast. But, um, like what's the, what's the, the Mount Rushmore. I mean, I think we could ask, I think we could say that let's look for four. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask, I'm going to talk to Sean and Heidi later. I'm going to ask them this question as well. What do you think is the Mount Rushmore of Cormac McCarthy's works? He's had enough books that I think we can try to distill the great, the greatest down into four without trying to and stretch. We're not choosing our personal favorites. This is what do we think are, yeah, I think let's, of, let's let's yeah. let's ask both those questions. Let's do the Mount Rushmore first, and then let's do, um, then let's do the the favorites. Yeah. And you know, this might even be a fun exercise to do together. I suppose the the, the Mount yeah. Rushmore part. All right, you want to start with Mount Rushmore? Yeah, let's try that. I mean, do you think the Blood Meridian has to be on there? Yeah, I does. I do. I does. I do. Even though I think it's um, it's a really hard book to read. It's not something you curl up and read aloud to your kids. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you actually like, I think you need to kind of like block off some recovery time after you finish the book. Mm-hmm. Cause it's, it is brutal. It's a, it's a book about, it's kind of widely praised critically as his most accomplished book. And it's the book that kind of puts him really on the literary scene. But this is before he becomes avidly read by more popular readers. Mm-hmm. That book, is all the pretty horses but blood meridian is the one that he was kind of the darling of a few select critics that were you know working in quiet places but with blood meridian everybody never stood up and took notice yeah it's such an interesting story because he's basically my understanding is he was bouncing around living in hotels um barely kind of squeezing by after writing those first few novels and he worked with I believe an editor who um, worked with Faulkner and Mm. there's a lot of, it's very, the prose is very Faulknerian in those early books. And then you get to blood Meridian and that's where he really introduces the spare, uh, the spare prose, maybe more in line with a Hemingway. Like if you have to point towards um, forebears who influenced him, he became known as being more of a Hemingway type writer. Um, And he had only sold, I think, 5,000 copies of any of these books. Uh, Blood Marine, he gets a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation, and that allows him to do the research and spend the time working on Blood Meridian, which comes up, but still doesn't do gangbusters at the box office, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, it still only sells, I think, like 5,000 copies, but then he he does um, All the Pretty Horses, and that's when the rest of his career takes off. And the interesting thing is I saw that Blood Meridian, let's see if I can find this, Blood Meridian is, is officially, um, for the first time in its nearly 40-year history, a bestseller. Because no it, way. It is now number eight 
of all books on Amazon in the couple of days since um, since uh, McCarthy died and uh, on Amazon. And um, and I can tell you, like yesterday, he died uh, Tuesday. And yesterday, people were coming into the bookstore. I pretty much sold out of what I had of his books. Yeah, uh, so yeah. I had to order more. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a book that I think... I don't know that I would recommend people start there. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people yeah, are going to be in for a rude awakening. I know. And, and it makes me sad because that is his critical, critically acclaimed book. But I, I don't think it's his best book. I mean, I think on Rushmore, for me, it's probably number three or four. But I just want to, I would start with a book like All the Pretty Horses or The Road. But just to give people a taste of Blood Meridian, I'm going to read two sentences right now oh, perfect. from yeah, yeah. the book. And you might be thinking, if you're listening to this, wait, Tim said he was going to only read two sentences. I am. And one of those sentences, the second sentence, is I think six words long. Here's the first sentence. The background is there is a group of cowboys that are working the Mexico-Texas border and they've been commissioned, I think, by the U.S. government, that might be a little bit murky in the book, to basically hunt a tribe of wild Indians. Yeah, Apaches, they, yeah. Yeah. And the cowboys end up being I mean, kind of just as bloodlusty as the Apaches were. And the Apaches were a pretty bloodlusty tribe. So here's the sentence of when the cowboys see the Indians that are going to ride down and attack them. It's kind of a surprise attack. Here it is. A legion of horribles, hundreds in number, half naked or clad in costumes, attic or biblical or wardrobed out of a fever dream with the skins of animals and silk finery and pieces of uniform still tacked with the blood of prior owners, coats of slain dragoons, frogged and braided cavalry jackets, one in a stovepipe hat, and one with an umbrella, and one in white stockings and a blood-stained wedding veil, and some in headgear or crane feathers or rawhide helmets that bore the horns of bull or buffalo, and one in a pigeon-tailed coat worn backwards and otherwise naked, and one in the armor of a Spanish conquistador, the breastplate and pauldrons deeply dented with old blows of mace or saber done in another country, by men whose very bones were dust, and many with their braids spliced up with the hair of other beasts until they trailed upon the ground, and their horses' ears and tails worked with bits of brightly colored cloth, and one whose horse's head was painted crimson red, and all of the horsemen's faces gaudy and grotesque, with daubings like a company of mounted clowns, death hilarious, all howling in a barbarous tongue and riding down on them like a horde from hell, more horrible yet than the brimstone land of Christian reckoning, screeching and yammering and clothed in smoke like those vaporous beings in regions beyond right knowing where the eye wanders and the lip jerks and drools. Oh my God, said the sergeant. <clears throat> it, it's so, I mean, if you can't see that as a reader, I mean, it, it, what a picture in a snapshot of what is kind of coming down the hill at these cowboys. And it includes like all of the things that make Cormac, Cormac McCarthy 
his prose famous. It includes all of like these words, some of these words you're like, wait, what, what exactly are we talking about when we say, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the words that he moved here. Um, he, he pushes words together. So crane feathers should be separated by a space crane feathers. He just pushes them together. Pigeon tailed coat worn backwards. Pigeon tailed should be one word. He pushes them together. It's part of the kind of like prose liberties that he takes and it's be kind of become this thing that he sometimes gets mimicked for or teased mm-hmm. for. Um, but he kind of just didn't care. He, he cut um, punctuation from his prose. Although he didn't and, start that way. Yeah, his early books were a little bit less that way. Um, but I think even his early books, maybe you remember better... David. It's I more think spare, was, but it's more spare. But I think he didn't use quotation marks. I don't think he ever used quotation marks in his book, which sometimes puts people off. But I think it makes the reader work a little bit harder mm-hmm. to say, "Okay, wait, who's speaking again?" And it and it functionally immerses you deeper in the dialogue because yeah. you're the one who has to kind of keep track who is it that's speaking, and it doesn't yeah. take long to kind of figure it out. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that that sentence is it's classic McCarthy. It is in a lot of ways uh, he kind of speaks with a 19th century accent, if that makes sense. And he has a kind of, I don't know what I would call it, maybe like a, a first century imagination. Like he's still got one foot in the ancient world and he has a pretty strong belief that humanity is humanity and there's in there like the reforming efforts that we have put forward in the modern world he views with some pretty significant skepticism i think he thinks that there's something in our blood that is prone toward violence that's prone toward um selfishness and the ego is kind of perpetually in check and now mm-hmm. people are maybe wondering so why are you interested in reading him well for me it's because he also has a an obsession with god and why is this the particular world that god created um and what do we owe him? So in that way, he's very much kind of a first century writer also. I don't mean his prose sounds anything like a first century writer. I just mean his kind of, his mindset and mentality are preoccupied with with ancient questions and in a lot of ways, kind of ancient solutions to those questions. Hmm. So if, you, if people do want to read Blood Meridian, I just want to mention that... Um, a old college professor of mine has a Substack. It's just called bloodmeridian.substack.com. It's called the, or that's the link. It's called the night does not end. And he's, he goes through blood meridian. Like he, each week he releases something. So he's got essays such as, um, that are about like blood meridian and the civil war, Gnosticism and blood meridian, um, Moby Dick's influence on blood meridian, the, the meaning of blood meridian's epilogue. So if you're reading that book, because you want to pay homage to this great writer, then that's a great resource if you're really wanting to dig deep into it to read it really closely. 
Um, what, so you'd say all the pretty horses is the second book that belongs on our Mount Rushmore. Yeah. And I, we're not, we're just like nominating for, we're not really putting them in order. Is that right, David? I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What do you, what are your, give me two books that you think belong in Mount Rushmore. I think you're right. I think all the pretty horses and, and blood Meridian definitely do. Um, I don't love the road the way other people do. Um, I do, however, love no country for old men. I think that the book, the movie is almost a perfect movie. Yes. And it's oh my goodness, virtually yes. a perfect adaptation because it stays so close to the movie. Um, I mean, to the book, I'm sorry. Um, but I think that, that that sort of can cause people to forget. It's one of those rare situations where the movie is so good mm-hmm. and so beloved and so mm-hmm. just highly thought of that you almost forget how book how great the book is. Usually what happens is everyone says, oh, the book's better than the movie. But this is one of those rare circumstances where the book, how great the book is, is actually getting at times washed out by how great the movie is. And it's one of those things where people say, well, the movie's so close to the book, so then you don't have that debate about the book versus the movie. And so then the book kind of can get forgotten because people might just, they might say, I'll just watch the movie. Um, And you almost could forgive them for saying that because of how good the movie is. But that is a book that I think that, his ability to to it's the, it's maybe the most purely novelistic in the sense mm. that the stakes the tension is so high yeah and so tight and the characters are so vivid and there's so much pathos and emotion and sometimes you know like in blood meridian you can get sort of wrapped up in the you can almost like forget the characters because of the prose and yeah it's such an intense book and it's very Joycean or whatever you want, however you want to describe it. But in No Country for Old Men, the characters and the emotion of the of the characters uh, that that comes along with rooting for the characters or rooting against the characters is is really profound. Um, yeah, and it, it as you know, I think you're right. Those the three things that you described earlier. It's got the prose, it's got the point of view, it's got the dialogue, um, and I think that that I think that I think. <sighs> In a two hundred years, the books I think that we'll be reading of his probably will be, um, Blood Meridian, and probably will be No Country. I mean, I think all the pretty horses will be up there, but you know, it's a part of a, it's part of a trilogy. Sometimes that can work against you in these sorts of things. Um, but I, I think No Country is one of those books that is just going to be readable and rereadable and be kind of his as I lay dying or something like yeah. that. The no country for old men also has one of the, for me, one of the best closings of his mm. books. So mm-hmm. this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't read it, but not too much of a spoiler. And I, and I wanted to say this, um, if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering, okay, I, my son likes to read books, but all are McCarthy's books too bloody. The answer is probably, well, probably, maybe, depends on, you know, how sensitive your son or your daughter is uh, um, to blood. But I think No Country for Old Men is a great place to start. I think The Road is a great place to start for a young person. And I think there's some real hope at the end of both those books. I'll just talk briefly about the conclusion of No Country for old men um 
there's a sheriff who's a prominent figure in the book, and he's basically charged with trying to find this character, Anton Chigurh, which seems like an indomitable force of evil. This is, again, McCarthy is so good at this. It, it feels like the bad guy cannot be defeated, and the sheriff has a reckoning with this, and he goes to visit a whole, an old friend of his. Actually, that's incorrect. He's speaking with his wife is the sheriff. And the sheriff, you know, having seen kind of like the face of evil is wondering whether or not it's worth trying to continue to kind of like fight against it. It seems like the wave is too big. And he tells his wife about a dream that he had. And in the dream... His father is off in the distance, in the darkness, and his father has set a fire, like a campfire. And he, the sheriff, as a younger person, starts walking toward that fire because he knows it's where his father is. And when he arrives, the fire is still burning, but his father has gone on further into the darkness and has started another campfire. And so the sheriff, as a younger person, goes after that campfire, and and he kind of tells this story uh, about this dream and there's a sense that he is trying to kind of walk in the path of his father who was a good man who started these kind of like outposts of light in this overwhelming darkness and that's kind of his solution to this sense of like just overwhelming gloom and darkness that just kind of seems to be everywhere in the book. And I, I find that, especially having lost my father relatively recently, I find that so inspiring because that was my dad. He kind of went into the darkness and he started these fires and I kind of went after him and I didn't quite know what I was going, but I just knew if I could make it to that next fire, it would be okay. Even if he, hmm. I didn't get to be with him, it would be okay. And maybe I could take the next step. It was such a powerful picture. My friend Pete, who's a chaplain in, I believe the army, one of the armed forces, mm -hmm. he wrote me, I hadn't talked to him in five years. And he's like, Hey, he wrote me two days before McCarthy's death. And he said, Hey, do you remember that kind of word picture about McCarthy? That really seems true. And I, I think Pete is kind of struggling with the kind of crisis of masculinity that's all over the army. Um, and he, Pete feels really grateful to his father. And so we were just kind of visiting about that picture from McCarthy that shows up at the end of No Country for Old Men. Mm. Yeah. David, Anton what's your fourth book? Mm, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say Ed Tom Bell, the sheriff in No Country for Old Men, is, I think, one of the most important characters in his canon. Um, you know, I think that um, when you when he when there's accusations of nihilism in his work, you can point to Ed Tom Bell as a character who is who is you know standing up against like a tr a force of true nihilism in Anton Sugar. Um, and there's so many great lines from from Ed Tom Bell that I think are you know, worth writing down and remembering. So, you know, he, he, for me, is one of the great McCarthy characters and one of those characters who you wish was on the page um, a little bit more. He has this line where he says something like, um, it's about what, it's, he's talking about, I guess, fighting sugar. And he says, I think it's more like what you're willing to become 
And I think a man would have to put his soul at hazard. And I won't do that. I think now that maybe I never would. Um, And the idea of, I think, your soul being at hazard is something that's, you know, all of our souls being constantly at risk of being diminished is a big part of what McCarthy's work is about. And some people dive all the way into that and they don't protect their souls. And then some people work hard to protect their own souls and the souls of others. And I think that's an oversimplification, but I think that's a big part of what his work is about and what No Country is about. And that's why I care about it. Uh, Okay, so... And I think that's a perfect segue to, for me, I'm going to nominate The Road as kind of like in my... like. Slot number three for yeah. the Mount Rushmore. I think it Rushmore. needs to be on the Mount Rushmore. I think yeah. it does. It won the Pulitzer Prize, for goodness sake. It's, it, I think it's perfect. I think it's absolutely perfect. And there's a similar character. It's the story of a father and a son mm-hmm. trying to make it to the coast after some sort of apocalyptic, it seems, it's unexplained, some sure. sort of nuclear holocaust has happened. The fact that it's unexplained is part of like why I think McCarthy is so insightful. If there was some sort of nuclear holocaust, if it like had the kind of detonating power that nuclear arms do have, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know what happened. Communications would be locked out and mm-hmm. we would kind of be like living in the aftermath of whatever it was that happened. So McCarthy doesn't give us any explanation. As you're talking here, I'm thinking we should just do The Road on Close Reads next year. Oh, the, it is such a beautiful, perfect book. It's so scary. I mean, there are parts that I remember reading. There's one section in particular. I bet you know what I'm talking about. I was reading it at night by myself and I was like, uh-uh, I can't do this. This is so <laughs> freaking scary. And yet okay, ultimately but, it's a book about fathers and sons. It's, it is. And like Ed Tom, is it Ed Tom Harris? Is that the sheriff's Bell, Ed name? Ed Tom Bell. Ed Tom Bell. The father is in danger of losing his soul as they make this journey because um, human civilization is basically turned into a legion of horribles. They be- they become like humans are hunting other humans, and so this father and this son are trying to make it safely to the coast and the boy i think he's nine maybe 10 years old is constantly asking his dad hey are we the good guys or are we the bad guys and the father is saying we're one of the good guys and the son is like then we then we have to act that way it's really beautiful because it's it's kind of a role reversal that the father ordinarily is the one teaching his son this is what it means to be good this is the direction of a life lived well. But given the terrible, terrible circumstances of the book, the father is just desperate to keep he and his son alive. And he's willing to kind of risk his moral compass, risk his soul for the sake of keeping his son and himself out of danger. And it's the son almost kind of functionally like the Holy Spirit in the book that is always kind of like asking the father, where are we in this kind of fight of good and bad light and darkness? Hmm. And it's a hard question for the father to ask sometimes given the circumstances of the book. And I just want to read one little bit of prose from that, David, if you don't yeah, mind. Do yeah. Um, this, this is not dialogue. It's just a moment of, I think the father 
remembering things from the world before the Holocaust, this nuclear Holocaust. And I think it has all the kind of trademarks of McCarthy's prose. It's beautiful and it's so real. Okay. Once there were brook trout in the streams in the mountains, you could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were the maps of the world in its becoming, maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back, not be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of a mystery. That, (laughs) it's so good. It's so good. Because I have held a brook trout in a mountain stream, and that is exactly what it's like. Like, their fins wimpled softly in the flow. That is exactly what the fins look like. They smell of moss in your hand. Yeah, they do. Polished and muscular and torsional. They are. I, I think the word torsional, I don't know that word. I assume it has something to do with torsion or torque. I'm taking McCarthy's word for it. On their back were vermiculate patterns that were the maps of the world, and it's becoming maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back. That's where McCarthy, after giving this beautiful, powerful, poetic description of what it's like to hold a brook trout in your hand, his gaze kind of drifts ancient or drifts upward, Mm. And, and he kind of brings in this metaphysical longing or a metaphysical haunting maybe is the right word hmm. at the end of some of these paragraphs that again, for me are kind of a signal of his affiliation with a kind of ancient base world that we, no matter how much we advance in the 21st century, we're still part of that world on some fundamental level. It's, yeah, it's almost Homeric. Yeah, it is. It is. And he gets likened to Homer, uh, also likened to Melville, another writer who kind of has that kind of ancient tint to a lot of his writing. Yeah, the the sense of uh, the, 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 the centuries change, but you know, people, prog- progress occurs yeah. in theory, right? But human existence is is still a is is still like a battleground. Um, yeah, right. And right. we have we fight that war in different ways. Um, I think that it goes back to the question of of souls. Um, it's you know the the eighteen hundreds in Blood Meridian versus the nineteen fifties in um uh all the pretty horses versus the early 2000s well i guess the 90s of no country for old men and the future of the road it's this it's the same sort of battles in different battlegrounds yeah um, yeah and it's the it's the battle over the soul you know it's yeah the, and you know his books aren't aren't christian books but they're books that that are like spiritual but not in that like trite self-help mumbo jumbo spiritual sense you know they're yeah yeah, like they're, yeah, yeah. they're they're asking like 
deeply important spiritual questions about what happens to a soul that encounters evil and and what does it take to re, to not become evil yourself yeah um, and like what can be that's like one of the deepest spiritual questions there is right how for do you sure. preserve your soul in the face of something evil for sure um yeah absolutely okay so, so go ahead go ahead go ahead well i was just gonna say um i know we're a little bit short on time have you nominated all four of your mount well, rushmore think, books i think that's the i think that's the right mount rushmore from yeah. McCarthy, Blood Meridian, All the Pretty Horses, The Road, and No Country. For I think that's those are I think his four probably his best books. You like his some of his earlier books too. You want to go over a couple other ones that you really like quickly? For me, he really catches his voice with a book called Sutri. So his first three books: The Orchard Keeper, nineteen sixty five; Outer Dark, nineteen sixty eight; Child of God, nineteen seventy three. You can see, I mean. They're beautiful, beautiful books, but they're hard to read. They remind me so much of one of McCarthy's literary heroes, who you mentioned already, William Faulkner. There's a kind of sliding point of view. The characters are um, oftentimes have like really tortured, dark backgrounds. And in that way, he is a direct descendant from Faulkner. I think McCarthy ends up becoming a better writer than Faulkner. I'm going to even say that I think he kind of stands on the shoulder of his hero um, and Im- improves upon him. I think the moment that he kind of gets his voice, McCarthy, is 1979, a book called Sutri. It's long. It's right before, it's the book right before Blood Meridian, and its prose is probably most like Blood Meridian. And it's the story, It's it's apparently pretty autobiographical. It's about this young man named Sutri who was born to wealthy, accomplished parents in Knoxville. But something has gone wrong with Sutri, and we don't really know what, because he's living in a boathouse on the Tennessee River, and he's basically a fisherman. The only like food that he brings in is from the fish he catches and sells at the market. Um, and he's probably kind of a medium functioning alcoholic. And apparently this is something that McCarthy struggled with early in his life also. And I, I don't know that my friends who love McCarthy, this is not always their favorite book. They always like it. For me, it's my favorite book. It has to be on the Mount Rushmore. It's incredible. It's incredible. I, I sometimes don't know how he does it. I could read that book. One of his shorter ones every too, right? year. No, no, it's long. It's the it's longer long. one. It's, it might be his longest one. one. Okay, I'm trying yeah, to remember it might that. be his longest. I could read it every year until the end of my life and be in in find new things about it. I mm-hmm. love it, and for me, it has to be on the Mount Rushmore. So, for you, are you taking which of the other four are you knocking off on your personal? So, for me, the Mount Rushmore is, um. N- all the Pretty Horses, The Road, Sutri. What's and the one that I'm missing? Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian. So you would take, you'd do Sutri over No Country. I would, strongly. Um, yeah. I love, I love No Country for Old Men. Um, sometimes it feels to me a little bit like reading a screenplay. Yeah. It, which, I mean, shouldn't be much of a, it, that's, that's not much of a criticism, but that's, that, it, Sutri is a novel. 
Um, gosh, I love that book. I'm gonna. I think I want to start that book soon after the Close Reads retreat, just because I miss McCarthy so much, and I just that's my favorite book of his. And maybe, mm. maybe I can trick my wife into tolerating me like reading aloud some of the passages that I love so much. <laughs> yeah, hey, I do that too sometimes. Yeah, I think I think that. Um, I think that. So, would you say that? Because that's your favorite of all of them. That's interesting. Oh yeah, I think my my personal favorite is still all the pretty horses. Gosh, um, that book. Um, but I'd be willing to say that you know if if we were having to, I'd be willing to allow Sutri to go on over No Country. Um, but I do think that I I think that such uh, No Country is going to be like you know how um, when you read. Faulkner, you read As I Lay Dying, but it's probably not his best book, like in terms of yeah, it's pure, right. purely his best book. That's right. how I see No Country for Old Men kind of being for McCarthy. It's, I think it's the, one of those books that's going to get taught and remembered, um, but maybe, and read a lot, but maybe isn't his best book. You know, like maybe maybe uh, Absalom Absalom is his Suchery, or maybe Absalom Absalom is, yeah. is, his, blood McCarthy, is his Blood Meridian. But I, maybe it's, maybe, maybe Suchery is his. Um, go down Moses or his yeah something like that where you've got uh, there's a group of people who absolutely adore it but it's it's a, a little less um widely read uh, no country is going to have that plot oriented mm-hmm. but still existentially concerned yeah um it's not you know it's not quite as violent as blood meridian but right. it's it, deeply intense and at times terrifying yeah books so i think those five books right there like you have to read all five of those books you you know you yeah before you die you have to read those five books (laughs) and i Um, think i think blood meridian is challenging blood meridian is challenging and i think you should ask your son to read the road and i think um your daughter to read all the pretty horses all the pretty Mm. horses is it's a beautiful love story and it's got moments of violence and extreme tension um not that like young men are not interested in romance of course they are but i guess horses so yeah and there's yeah that's right that's right there's that romance between men and horses (laughs) yeah yeah Okay, so but, anyway, can I ask you before we yeah. go about yeah. uh, what do you think of the last couple of books that he wrote? Did you read The Passenger? I read them both immediately. I got them both the day that they came out. I remember. I remember you texting me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they include a lot of the things that I love McCarthy for, but I think they are both of all the books that he published. I would probably put those books last. Um, I would put them even lower than the first three books. There's something kind of, someone described them as kind of like he had all these wonderful, like, I don't know, scenes that he had probably been writing over the last 10 years. And he kind of put those scenes together in a book. But I just don't know that the books really work. I think the second, Stella Morris, is better than The Passenger. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, honestly, a the little bleakness, divisive. yeah, the bleakness of both of those books is off-putting for me. I mean, he's, he's bleak, but there's always been a kind of like silver line on the horizon, um, in, in a lot of his books, maybe not in all of them, 
But these books just, oh my goodness, they are really dark. And I don't think they're kind of representative of his broader work, maybe in terms of prose, but I don't think in terms of quality or over uh, or, or, or outlook. Mm-hmm. Well, it'd be interesting to see how they age. Yeah. I don't think they're going to age well, but I'm curious. I'm curious to see how they'll age. What do yeah. you, have you read them yet? I, I've, I haven't, you know, it's interesting because I kind of was saving them yeah. for a time when I can really dig into them, which I don't know when that's ever going to be. Um, but I'll probably, I don't I want, I, when I've heard the news, I immediately thought, oh, maybe I'll read The Passenger and Stella Maris now. But then I thought, no, I want to go back and revisit of the, course. the, the yeah. greatest hits. It's like, yeah, of you course. Know, when Paul McCartney, yeah, the, yeah you know, eventually right. one day, hopefully long into the future dies, is like, I'm going to go listen to the greatest hits. I'm not going to go try to check out the the final album or like Bob Dylan. I'm going back to the first album, you know? Yeah, right. Um, right. But I was talking, you know, we've had Martin Amos died recently. Philip Roth died a few years ago. McCarthy. Um, mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. You, You've got this this group of sort of legendary. Updike died Updike, like, no, in the no, last five years. I think it was even, I think it was more than that. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but you got this whole group of writers from that generation like yeah. that, 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 like all kinds of artists, actually painters and musicians that captured the, the middle and later part of the 20th century and became the artistic and literary voices of, of our country. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of of the West and we're starting to lose them, you know, yeah. a bit by bit because they're getting into their eighties and their nineties, you know, Barry, Wendell Barry's almost 90. Um, yeah. and they all have different points of view. They wrote in different ways, but collectively they created the literary landscape that we're living in now and that people are writing in now. And it's going to be really interesting to see what's next and how their collective and individual legends and reputations Mm. evolve and, and be, and get solidified. Um, I think the next 25 years of American literature is, Mm -hmm. is we're like in a tenuous place and it's going to be interesting to see how, the next 25 years are shaped by writers like McCarthy. I think it's, I think it's like actually really important that something that that happens because otherwise we're kind of, and that's a different podcast for a different day, but finish that thought though, because otherwise we're so, um, not in a great spot in many yeah. ways. Um, yeah. I think, you know, that comes, I don't, I don't, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I mean, there's a lot of great writers working out there but I don't think as many people are trying to do difficult, are trying to do right. difficult things and are paying attention to um, like the, trends and other voices or something like that. Yeah. But I think, I think actually people are almost trying to be too trendy right now. Whereas someone like McCarthy mm. didn't give a, you know what about, he did about what the care. trends were. He's looking, right. he's orienting himself towards, you know, Homer, he's orienting himself towards Shakespeare. He's orienting himself towards, towards old things and old questions. Yeah. And he is preoccupied with those sorts of things. And contemporary writers, that's, that's less so contemporary publishing is less so, um, you know, all, but of course he barely, you know, it took him 20 years to, to really oh, become yeah. who he became more oh, than that. Yeah, so, for sure. um, you know, it takes it takes a career of writing to get to the point where you become a legend. So, I, I, I think you're so right, David. I mean, there's McCarthy was so 
obsessively unconcerned with kind of um, the world of criticism, like attending meet and greets with other writers. He, it, it appears that he hated that stuff. And he is a loner. He's always been a loner. I think three marriages all ended in divorce. Um, you know, was probably not an easy person to live with, but he was consummately consumed with his one task, which was writing. He, he also became really, really interested in um, science late in his life and kind of moved in with the Santa Fe Institute and had an office there. But his prose, I think, in his singular voice is largely because he was just not concerned to try to write like somebody else with the exception of his heroes. He wasn't following contemporary trends. He was looking to past masters, which I just think, I mean, as people who are interested in the classical Christian education renewal, this is the perfect recipe for kind of like what we think education should be about. Trends come and go you know, shallow trends come and go, but the imitation of past masters of the greatest things that have been written and thought, that's where we're trying to put our mind. And I think we absolutely had a brother in Cormac McCarthy who was chiefly concerned with those titans who walked the land before him and who he could learn from and maybe even like Faulkner maybe even improve upon. And so for me, that's another one of the reasons why I just recommend him so highly is that Mm. he is a, he is a voice from the past that cherished the past. And he had, I think a kind of healthy distrust of Instagram. I mean, I bet he didn't even know what Twitter was. Right. Yeah. 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 That sounds like a good place to end. Cormac McCarthy did not trust Instagram. Um, Tim, this was fun. Thank you for coming on and chatting. This will be a part one of two episodes that we're gonna that we're gonna do, kind of celebrating um, Cormac McCarthy and commemorating him. Um, gonna record with Sean and Heidi later for part two. Um, I think what I'll do is probably separate these into two episodes because we just went forty five minutes yeah. by ourselves. Yeah. So probably just break them up into two episodes, but. Um, you go hit up Sutri again. I'm gonna yeah. go read. Maybe I'll read no Sutri again man. too. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, probably what I'll do is read the first paragraph of All the Pretty Horses a hundred times because I think it's one of the great paragraphs oh, in so English good. literature. Um, so good. The candle and the flame yeah. of the candle and the shadow and it I mean, write it and what is it like? It twisted and then righted itself and twisted yeah. again in the yeah. yeah. And I mean, the way his ability to create to to combine metaphor an action and create meaning by putting the two together. Like yeah. his metaphors are never just metaphors. They yeah. can be their scene making, but they're also meaning making Yeah, at the same time, but not yeah. in a way that's that like feels stilted. Right. Uh, anyway. Right. Uh, Cormac McCarthy did not trust Instagram. That's where we were going to end. <laughs> <laughs> that's Tim. the banner for this, for this episode. <laughs> Tim, thank you. I think we came up. I think those are the five books. I think you're right. Those are the five books that you know need to be. If you if you're not going to read anything else, read those five books in some order. Probably don't start with Blood Meridian. That's what I would say, though. Agreed. 
Um, all right, Tim. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Sounds good, David. See you.